This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast. This is our last edition prior to the summer break, and we'll be back in September. I'm Peter Terzakian. Welcome, Jackie. And we have got a really interesting show today because this is our first live podcast, and we are fortunate enough to have been invited by Scotiabank at the Scotiabank Calgary Sampede 2019 conference. We have with us, and if you can envision this as our audience, a very long table that is beautifully set, and we have investors, we've got oil and gas company executives who are here to listen and participate in our podcast today. So we're going to do it live, so if you hear some forks and knives clanking and you hear uh, a few yahoos around the table, it's because it's Stampede and it is because uh, we are live. Okay, and just before recording the podcast, we polled our audience on a number of questions relevant to investing in oil and gas and in Canada, and we're going to share the results during this podcast. So we're going to start with the big picture in terms of oil price and investing, narrow in on investing in Canadian oil and gas, and then finish with some political predictions, something we don't do very often, but we're relying on our audience for those political predictions here. Okay, so tell us about what's going on with oil. Last fall, it was $76 a barrel. Where is it today? Yeah, it's been such a ride over the last year. We've seen highs of 76 and lows under $50. Uh, Today, we're getting closer to 60 on geopolitical risk. But I think companies have to prove to investors that they can do well in this lower price environment. If anything, investors have learned over the last year is that prices are volatile, and you can't sort of count on them uh, in terms of getting your returns. Well, we've got a lot of investors around the table here. So what you're saying is that the people around the table are not necessarily in belief of the 60, that you think uh, uh, it's just sort of a hanging in there? Or what do you think? You think the 60 is going to take us through to next year? I mean, I think the prices are going to range in this 50 to 60 band, as we've seen. Um, obviously, with, if we have big outages in the Middle East, which are possibly there, they could go higher. But on the flip side, if we don't, the market looks very well supplied. There's a lot of supply coming on at the end of the year from the Permian. And there's also a lot of supply from non-OPEC from Brazil coming on next year. Uh, And actually, if we don't get a major outage, we'll actually have to see OPEC make an even bigger cut next year Mm -hmm. to balance the market. So, you know, when you consider all that, if we don't have an outage, I think you've got to think prices maybe are in that band, but maybe on the lower side. It sounds like it's still volatile, even though I sense that there's sort of this... uh but we'll call it a fragile stability in that $60 range. I mean, the Iranian situation still is a wild card. A couple of weeks ago, we were understood that we were five minutes uh, to, quote, obliterating Iran, uh, which would have really, depending on the severity of the military action by the United States, could have definitely taken the price of oil much, much higher uh, to the $100 a barrel. But we're not really in a $100 a barrel world, uh, notwithstanding uh, that sort of military action, are we? No, and I think the the market is really well supplied. So, yes, if we actually physically get an outage where there's supply that's taken off for a period of time, I think we could get those higher prices, but you know, wouldn't kind of plan that around uh, what your business would look like and, and what you should do at this point. But, you know, one thing to watch for, I think, you know, there's that potential, but there's also the potential for more supply. And, you know, one question is always what what's going to happen with the US? How much will they grow this year and next year over the past they have continued to always beat expectations in terms of supply growth. And we had a polling question from our audience about will the U.S. grow oil production to more than a million barrels a day in 2020? So on top of what they're already producing, like where are they? I mean, they're, the, the amount of production. Well, they're going to grow about 1.2 million barrels a day 
this year, and 19. that's the expectation in 19, and they grew more than that uh, the previous year. But can they get another year of growth that's over a million barrels a day? And you know, what did our audience think about that? Did they think they could grow? Well, the audience was, I think, pretty resolute. 85% said yes, that the juggernaut in places like the Permian is not going to slow down by much at all. I mean, adding a million barrels per day per year uh, is, a, is a huge amount of volume. Yeah, and then on top of that, there's some non-OPEC supply coming from other places like Brazil, and demand might be softening a little bit. So although there's that potential for a big outage and, and high prices, I think uh, without that, the prices are going right. to stay in a lower range. But the, but the OPEC group, the OPEC plus group, have recently agreed to maintain their cuts. Yes, maintain their cuts, but I guess the question is, it's actually possible that next year they would even need to cut larger volumes right. uh, in order to balance the market. Are they going to be willing to do that? Right. But the flip side to all this is, you know, it sounds very sort of precariously bearish, notwithstanding these geopolitical events. But the flip side is we know that when the price of oil dips below that $50 mark, all of a sudden it's, it's the other side of the story, which is that investment really starts to dry up. The rigs go home. And uh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting balance we have, I think, in that 50 to 60 range now. Well, so that, let's go to our next thought. You know, if that's the range that most people believe in, and I agree with you, it's hard to see it staying below 50 for a long time because there's no cash flow and eventually we'd see supply start to curtail. But if investors believe, and we talked about this on our show, Be The Money podcast not long ago, mm-hmm. that prices are going to stay in a narrow band, they're not going to go up very much, they are looking for something different out of their oil and gas investments. You know, in the old days, you might invest in oil and gas because you think commodity prices are going to go up and your stock price will appreciate with that. And oh. as long as your company has lots of oil and gas production, you're going to do well. And then there may even be an M&A kicker if your company gets acquired by somebody. Yeah, no, the, the, the historic reasons for investing in oil have uh, long been, well, at the top of the list was a hedge against inflation. In other words, the belief that the price of oil is going to escalate in real dollar terms more than inflation. When you think about decades of progressive scarcity leading up to the peak oil era, uh, that was a valid thesis. But today we're in that period of uh, abundance where, you know, listen to the poll of the the audience here, the belief is that the United States is going to grow by a million barrels per day per year. That was unthinkable yeah. uh, only a few years ago. So now you're right. It is a different mindset in terms of what investors want out of oil companies. Yeah, oil they want companies. them to show them the money. If they can't get their return through stock appreciation, they want to get it other ways in real returns. And so we polled our audience mm-hmm. in terms of how should companies allocate their free cash flow. So oil and gas companies that generate free cash flow have traditionally put all of that money and even a bit more into CapEx so right. that they could grow their production. Right. Uh, and our poll today asked, should they put it into growth, dividends, buybacks, debt repayment, or M&A? And, you know, I was really actually quite surprised by the distribution here. Zero, zero percent said they should put their money or will put their money back into growth. Uh, But I think that has been the directive from both Wall Street and Bay Street to the oil and gas business in North America is uh, hold the line on production, which makes sense. We've got enough. Uh, And I want my money back in form. So we had 5 percent who want dividends. 45% 45% who want share buybacks, um, or by the way, this is also oil and gas executives around this table, so it's what they're going to do is buybacks. Debt repayment, 40%. Uh, so debt repayment and buybacks are 
85% of the vote, which is really interesting because basically you're giving your money back to the banker, you're giving your money back to the shareholder. Right. Well, historically, and I'm only talking like two years ago or more, the reverse is true, is how much am I going to borrow and how much am I going to go to Wall Street yeah. and Bay Street to get? So yeah. it's a complete reversal of mindset. And M&A was 10%. If you yeah. went back three, four years ago, you would have yeah. seen uh, more people saying put the money into M&A and growth. Right. At least that's how oil and gas companies were operating. But, uh, you know, it's interesting, too, to me, more interest in buybacks than dividends. And maybe that's because, you know, commodity prices are volatile and it's hard to commit to dividends, but buybacks yeah. you can do as you can afford them depending on where the commodity prices happen to be. Yeah, I mean, if your balance sheet's in good shape, in other words, uh, your leverage is fine, your debt levels, and the CEO and the board of directors are making a decision with what to do with the money. They say, well, should we put it back into the ground to grow our production? The answer here is resolutely no, because we're going to talk about it here. There's egress issues. We don't need any more productive capacity. So what am I going to do? Well, I'll buy back my shares, which is also, interestingly, from a company, a corporate standpoint, the belief that there's more value in my own shares than there is uh, in putting the money back into the ground. Yeah, so, it's, yeah, uh, so big change. And I think many oil and gas companies are responding to investors' demands for uh, real returns and not growth. Yeah. And you're starting to see that. Yeah. yeah, good. What's the next one? Corporate valuations in terms of the perception of whether or not the share prices, which have fallen precipitously over the course of the last few years in Canada. I mean, the oil and gas S&P TSX index is, is down. I mean, just, I don't know, what, what is it down? It's like 80% of the I last think the index uh, from 2017 is down about 40%. 40%. Now that's okay, for sorry. upstream yeah. oil and gas companies, not integrated. So yeah. it hasn't been doing that well. Uh, U.S., uh, similar group in the U.S. is down about 20%. So they've been struggling as well. That's in the last two years. In right? the last two in years. In the last two yeah. years, down 20% in the U.S., 40% here. I mean, yes. that's, that's, that's just uh, crazy. So it's not surprising that the poll said that the group is an undervalued group, in yeah. other words, that uh, these stocks have value in them, that uh, they are able to, either through buybacks or dividends, create value, that the, the discipline of being able to now make money rather than just going back and issuing shares and diluting your equity uh, is something that's taken root. Yeah, yeah. So the polling question was, you know, are Canadian oil and gas equities undervalued, fairly priced, or overvalued? And the vast majority, 95%, said undervalued. I mean, that's kind of interesting. If you look at the value of a public company today compared to their profit, before <coughs> companies would be trading at six or eight times their annual profit in terms of the value of their right. enterprise. And today it's four times and, and right. even lower. And so I guess the belief of, of this group is that over time, as companies prove that they can generate returns in these prices and returns through dividends and buybacks, that mm -hmm. they will start to see those stocks being valued at a higher level. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the market is the market. And I, you know, economic theory says that the value of uh, the enterprise is all wrapped up in the price. In other words, the market doesn't lie. If it's down 40%, it's down 40% for a reason. And those reasons relate to things like the takeaway capacity, the market access mm. issue. You know, we talked about generally the overall markets today so far, but let's talk about what makes Canada unique relative to oil and gas investing in general. I would say some of our issues are egress, but let's find out from our polling question what the investors here thought the Canadian-specific energy issues are that, that the industry faces. So the question was, is it egress, regulatory, economics or higher perceived greenhouse gas intensity? Yeah, the, the, I mean, the answers were again, resolutely the egress, in other words, the lack of pipeline capacity, the takeaway capacity issues. 80% of the people around the table voted for that. Regulatory issues, 10% felt that that was the value drag. 
economics 10% and higher perceived greenhouse gas intensity, in other words, the issue of uh, carbon intensity of production, which has actually been going down in the business. Uh, so maybe in that regard, not surprisingly, none of the participants around the table voted for that. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because headlines do talk a lot about our pipeline angst uh, in this country, in this industry, and the table has reflected that with 80% of its vote, and only 10% said economics. I kind of take a little bit of exception to that personally. I mean, I think that the economics are an issue, an issue from the perspective of competition. Uh, we have got severe competition here for the past few years from the United States, and investors make a choice. And we know that technology is radically changing our business, and I, I lump that into economics as well. So I don't, you know, whereas I'm not trying to diminish the pipeline issue, that certainly limits our ability to grow. And we know from the previous polling question that the industry is not putting their money into growth. So therefore, what do you think of these results? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I think our economics are actually pretty good. I read yeah. the Scotiabank reports whenever they come out, and they do some great work to compare the economics of key plays in Canada, whether it be the Montney or the Duvernay, yeah. and they compare the rate of return of those with normal differentials to what you would get in the Eagleford and the big name plays like in the Permian in the U.S. And we see that there are parts of Western Canada that can compete. And why is that? You know, even though we have lower prices, we have an exchange rate that's really beneficial here in Western Canada. Like we sell our product in U.S. dollars, but we pay our expenses in discounted Canadian dollars. And that's a huge advantage over American producers. We have lower royalty rates. I think we're more advanced on the ESG. Now, due to regulations that are ahead, but also due to some voluntary uh, things that companies, especially around the oil sands, have been doing, we do have great rocks. We have great people. We have costs that aren't inflating compared to places like in the U.S. where things are really busy and costs are inflating. So I think we have some advantages that enable Canadian oil and gas companies to do quite well. One of the things we face, though, is uncertainty around commodity prices right. because right. of the egress. And I think once that can be taken away, I think that, that the investments in Canada and U.S. should look a lot more comparable. Well, that's a pretty great sales pitch you've given, and you know, I wouldn't uh, necessarily disagree with all of it. I guess maybe it's my misinterpretation of the question, because if I go back to that question, what is the number one issue the Canadian industry is facing? And I guess I was somewhat thinking of it from the perspective of the previous question, which is, why are share prices so low? I mean, I would argue share prices are low because of that brutal competition. And our first question, which is sort of the disbelief that the price of oil is, is really going to drive the indices by going further up. Uh, but from, you know, I do agree that, uh, you know, the third point here, economics, that is not an issue in the minds of the people around the table is because we are, we are good at bringing this stuff out of the ground. I, I think that we have evolved dramatically over the course of the last four years to the point where, I mean, you think about it, we've been living with the lowest oil prices and the lowest gas prices in the world, and yet our productive capacity continued to grow. So that should yeah, tell you right there, like we're good at, at doing this. And our uh, emissions are going down, which is, uh, I think, why the table basically said, you know, like uh, that's, that's really not the biggest issue here in terms of either where we are or where we're going to go. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, really interesting. What's the next uh, polling topic? All right. The well, on that topic of market access, so Canada is short capacity for gas and oil. So let's talk a little bit about that. Now, on the oil side, we have this curtailment of our production, which has really helped improve the prices here in Western Canada. But we need more uh, takeaway capacity through rail and pipe in order to lift those curtailments and produce uh, at the level that yeah. we can. And that's our market access issue. So we asked our attendees here, and by the way, they're serving dessert here, which just looks delicious, but you and I have to continue <laughs> talking. Um, yeah. So 
Here's the question. The Canadian export pipeline that will come into service first will be, number one, Trans Mountain, number two, Keystone XL, or number three, Line 3? And the answers are? 95% uh, of people said Line 3, and 5% said TMX, and nobody voted for the Keystone XL here. Yeah. What, what, you guys don't like Keystone XL. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's an appropriate lack of belief that uh, that saga is going to end anytime soon. Uh, but what do, you, what do you think about this line three? I mean, it's, it's, it's had its, its uh, sort of court cases and things thrown out of as right. well. And we talked about that on the podcast a few weeks ago. It's, it's had a delay. It was supposed to come on in uh, the second half of 2020, which was already delayed from the original timeline. But now, because it was decided that they didn't do all the environmental work to consider a watershed, they need to go back and redo that. Yeah. Now, Enbridge hasn't come out and said what the delay will be, if there will even be a delay, but I would expect that there will be a delay. That said, TMX got the green light from the federal government a few weeks ago, and now it's looking like 2022 is the most likely date for TMX. So I would agree with the audience. I mean, I would hope Line 3 would come on before 2022. Yeah, we need that. And it shouldn't be that far away. We've got this new regulatory hurdle to get through, but uh, after that, hopefully we, we can get moving on that. You know, as an aside, if Line 3 is delayed further, the rail solution is really progressing quite well, isn't it? Yeah, we're seeing crude by rail. Uh, we were up to about 350,000 barrels a day moving by crude by rail at the end of the year. Additional capacity has come on due to long-term commitments made by oil companies and, and the Alberta government. Uh, so you know, our expectation is that we could be moving close to 600,000 barrels a day of crude by rail by the end of the year if the right incentives are there. Today, because of curtailment, we're not got the right incentives to move that much crude by rail, but that is there. Like, Put that in perspective. That is like uh, pretty much the TM pipeline moving yeah. by crude dry rail. And I think that is going to make a huge difference over the next year or two here in Western Canada, in addition to these pipes when they do show up. Right. And rail offers different types of flexibilities in terms of going to different refineries and markets across North America, which pipe does not offer. So it's, it'll be an interesting evolution over the next two, three years as, uh, as the market access issues starts to ease up, but not so much for natural gas where we've got uh, really volatile prices. Actually, somebody asked me this morning, what's the price of gas, almost like a quiz, and I said, I don't know, zero. Uh, it's, it's been so low. But actually, uh, I was surprised to hear it was $1.86. Or yeah, something. it's like, recovered uh, in the last day. Uh, well, there's always ups and downs, uh, but June, June we averaged about 58 cents Canadian per gigajoule, and so it, it's pretty challenging. That's free. Like, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, and meanwhile, the U.S. guys are, are more like at 250 U.S., Mm -hmm. uh, so we're about a, more than a 60% discount than the Americans. Now, the lower prices in June were the result of an oversupplied market, lack of ability to get our gas into storage caverns, and some maintenance and turnaround work that reduced our ability to move gas. And uh, yeah, it's not a good situation. We called it an, our natural gas uh, situation a crisis on a former podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, the new Alberta government... The UCP has assigned an associate minister of natural gas, who's an MLA called Dale Nally, yeah. uh, who's looking at the concerns from the perspective of what can be done over the next few years to improve the situation. We do have some longer term things that can help our natural gas markets like LNG and further expansions uh, to eastern markets, but they're a couple of years away. What can we do to increase the prices? Because we've got companies here in Western Canada that are really struggling. Uh, we've had one bankruptcy yeah. so far, and the expectation is uh, other companies could go bankrupt because of these very low prices. Well, I don't think we're looking for the price of natural gas to you know, rocket up to 5 or $6, which was you know, the way it was 5 to 10 years ago. I mean, I think we're just looking for 
our producers to get fair market value from a North American context, and then as we get LNG from a global context, I mean, 58 cents as an average is, I mean, as yeah. I said, it's basically free. You're basically I mean, losing money. Uh, by the time a gas producer produces that, uh, you have to put it through a processing plant, you have to transport it to the eco hub. Yeah, like no, it's costing you more money to do that than, than no, what you're So making. it ends up being a waste product, which is really perverse from this perspective of low carbon fuels. So um, we need to get the fair value for that. I'm glad to hear that there are things in motion, uh, but it is the, the low prices on the natural gas side are also a bit of a drag on something that you mentioned earlier on when we started the show uh, about M&A, right? And mergers and acquisitions. I mean, there's a reluctance to merge and consolidate right now. And so we asked our audience about the outlook for mergers and acquisitions in the Western Canadian sedimentary yeah. basin, and what did they say? Well, specifically in the Montney, the question was, will there be consolidation in the next 12 to 18 months? And the question was, true or false? And what, what was, was the, the answer? I don't know. I don't, you, you've got the answer. Oh, I got, you it got now. The I've got it now. Okay. Oh, you got okay. it now. Okay. And the answer was 68% said true. They think there will be some consolidation. Interesting, because they're not really rewarding companies for an M&A, but maybe consolidation would be viewed differently in that mm-hmm. it brings down the costs, uh, it provides better market access. You know, so not all Western Canadian producers are getting 58 cents in June. Some have access to higher right. price markets because they have uh, space on these big pipelines that take you to places like Chicago yeah. and uh, Malin, and they get higher prices. So there may be some consolidation that would help uh, increase the cost structure for some of these Montney players. And of course, the Montney players... Many have liquids production as well, which is really beneficial. Yeah, well, I would side with the true that, yes, it's true, because we know the trend in oil and gas, like in many other industries in the world, is that scale matters. And so you do need scale and consolidation, really is the foundation of bulking up and also driving your, your costs even lower. Uh, on the flip side, though, I would say that um, there's such abundance of natural gas. I mean, producers say, well, I already have enough. Like, why would I bother merging with the, with, uh, the producer across the street? And, and, so there, and then there's the other dynamic where the seller of natural gas or the potential seller will say, well, I'm not going to sell at the bottom of the market when the price of my commodity is free. Like, you got to bid higher. So we've got a very large what we call bid-ask spread. In other words, mm-hmm. buyer and seller can't meet in terms of agreeing on a price for a consolidation transaction. So to be honest, even though the bulk of the table thinks that there is going to be consolidation, I'm personally not thinking there's going to be any consolidation mm-hmm. that's of meaningful size uh, for at least a couple of years until we start seeing more consistently priced and less volatile natural gas, fairer priced natural gas, and, and the oils uh, aside as well. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think you're right. There are some barriers for sure. We'll wait and see what happens on that one. We'll come back in 18 months All right, and next see who's right. Okay, the longer term solution, obviously, from Western Canada is LNG. We need to get out of these saturated North American markets. The good news in 2018 was LNG Canada sanctioned that project, proving that you can economically deliver Western Canadian gas to Asia, which I always knew, but it was great to have that validation. Yeah, it was great. Um, some of our benefits are we have very low price gas, as we just talked about. Uh, we also have a much shorter shipping distance to Asia, about half the distance of the Americans. And LNG Canada showed when they sanctioned that they believed Western Canadian gas could be delivered cheaper to Asia than the Americans could deliver from the U.S. Gulf Coast. Now, unfortunately, the Americans have 10 BCF per day of projects there or under construction, and we have our one LNG Canada project, which is about 1.8 BCF per day of of LNG. So we're behind uh, in terms of the volume leaving, but it's good to see that the economics work. Well, I I think the economics are going to continue to be compelling. I mean, if we 
are one of the lowest cost producers in the world of natural gas. As I said, it's coming out of the ground almost for free, and it's still trading for a pretty price in Asia. That differential, otherwise known as an arbitrage, uh, is pretty compelling. And I think companies like Shell pushed the Canadian LNG project to the top of their portfolio of investable projects for that reason. And I think we're going to see other ones, and that's what our table said as well. So let's yeah, look forward to that. Yeah, the question was, uh, over the next 10 years, will Canada have more than one major LNG project? And the results were? 60% said yes. Yeah, 60%, 40% said no. Yeah. I hope that the yeses are right. We have a huge opportunity here. It would have huge benefits to our economy. And also some positive impact when you look, consider greenhouse gas emissions globally. Yeah, great. Okay, what's up next? The role okay. of the juniors, the little guys, uh, and some not so little in the, what we call the intermediates, which are, well, juniors are typically, they're about uh, 10,000 barrels a day equivalent under, and uh, intermediates probably go up to about 100,000 uh, barrels of uh, oil equivalent. So the question was... Is there a future for Canadian public juniors and intermediates? And it was true or false? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question because certainly the junior market, which used to be so vibrant and robust only half a dozen years ago, has really been decimated and ravaged. Uh, many of their stock prices in the public markets are down 90 plus percent over the course of the last few years. So what did they say? Is there a future for these companies? 70% said true. There yeah. is a future for these companies. 30% said false. Yeah. Well, I tend to agree with the yes, but it's a qualified yes because... Uh, you know, it's a little bit, I, I always draw the analogy to the corner grocery store versus Walmart. You know, there's no question that the big box have an advantage with their scale. And when Walmart comes into a neighborhood, the little guys sort of get pushed out. I think there's a similar dynamic that's happening, but it doesn't mean it's the end of the small retailer. It just means that the small retailer has to adapt to the future with technology, in the case of retail going online and, and cutting their costs and and being much more clever about getting their products to market. So I think there is a role for a junior. I think some of them are well positioned to go into sort of, I would call a higher value add modality uh, into the 2020s. I think those juniors that either don't or can't adapt to the future, much like a, a corner bookstore that doesn't adapt or a corner grocery store, I think that there probably isn't much of a future for them. Yeah, I mean, the large companies do have some big advantages, like can get lower CapEx mm -hmm. and OpEx. They have more opportunities to get to these higher-priced markets and not be subject to the lower prices here in Western Canada. But the junior advantages, I would agree. New technology, they tend to innovate and find new plays and methods that the big companies don't in Western Canada. And I, I believe, you know, the fracking technology uh, is still uh, not mature here relative to the U.S. And I believe there are still plays in areas of Western Canada where we haven't really applied these methods oh. and figured out the code. And I think the junior segment... Uh, is well positioned to have those breakthroughs that can create whole new plays that we we don't know about today. I also think they're innovating on on ESG by reducing their environmental footprint and lowering their business risk, and they have less of that ESG baggage uh, because they're newer usually and don't have some of those older assets. Yeah, good. All right. Well, we finished dessert here, as I can see, so it's time to talk politics. Yes. And yes. We've got a couple questions. So the big here. question. So I'm stepping I, out into a realm. Should I put my cowboy hat back on? I don't know. Yeah, like, that's right. Where we're real experts at, we're not total total experts at politics here, so we're just relying on our audience for their uh, political expertise here. Um, so this is a question many Canadians are asking right now, and we'll be talking about this summer. What is the most likely outcome of the Canadian federal election in October? Yeah, and uh, so we've got the three choices here. A conservative majority led by Andrew Scheer, a liberal majority led by Justin Trudeau, or some other combination 
or other majority. Uh, 11% said conservative majority. Liberal majority was, I think it was only like 5%. 5%, yeah. And other is definitely in the majority, which is 75%. Yeah, 75% other said other. And if you look at the most recent polling, I, I can understand why people think that. I'm just looking at a CBC poll that aggregates various polls that was issued on July 3rd. It was showing 35% of the Canadians want to vote conservative, 31% liberal, 13% NDP, and 11% green. That's surprising. I don't think the Greens have ever polled quite that high. Um, But interestingly enough, you've got almost a, a third of the votes going to NDP and green. And so if, you know, if the election were to go this way, you would see that uh, there'd probably have to be a minority government formed here. Yeah, and I think that reflects uh, what the, the sentiment is around the table here. Really, actually, uh, NDP, Green, and Liberal is two-thirds of, of the country, and one-third is conservative. That speaks to me to be sort of left-leaning populace in this country. And so, you know, I don't know what the outcome of the election is. Nobody does. I think it is going to be a bit of a coin toss in many ways. But I think from an industry perspective, it does continue to have to cater to the understanding that the people in Canada are, according to this poll, you know, dominantly center or center left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's surprising to see uh, so many votes going for the Greens, for example. Right. And now, I wanted to have an interesting historical note here. I don't know if if history is always predicting the future. But Pierre Trudeau, in his second term, Trudeau relied on the NDP to remain in power. Mm. Now, that minority government only lasted for two years, and and then there was another election, and Trudeau actually won a major majority at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe this is going to follow like uh, the past Trudeau, that that we have a minority Well, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But I can tell you that the industry uh, is really having to now just, you know, nose down, get your costs lower, pay greater attention to ESG, as we have talked about in several of our prior podcasts, and independent of the politics, just do the best job you can, do your best to get the highest value uh, markets. And uh, I, I think that that's really the strategy here, because the politics, uh, in, you know, it's not only Canada, in many of the democratic countries uh, in, in, in the West are uh, just so unpredictable right now. Yeah, and talking about unpredictable politics, uh, <laughs> let's talk about the U.S. 2020 presidential election. So we asked our audience, would the election be won by Donald Trump, number one, Joe Biden, or other? Well, we've got a lot of Trump, uh, well, I don't know if they're supporters, but believers anyway. <laughs> uh, 60% of the people feel that Donald Trump is going to be coming back into power. Um, Joe Biden, 15%, and somebody else from the Democratic camp, uh, 25% or so, according to the poll. You know, I tend to agree, to be honest with you. I mean, I I don't want to get too deep into American politics because I'm not even an American. But from the uh, discussions that I see, I mean, the Democrats are somewhat fractured, and that serves into the Trump base. So I think that uh, it's probable that we will see a Trump return. But I, I can't call it. And I, I, I would say, though, that we cannot count on, again, American politics to cloud our judgment here. We just have to do the best job that we can, uh, given the political cards that we are going to be dealt, whether it's on this side of the border or the other side mm-hmm. of the border. You no, know, if I put the Joe Biden and the other, assuming they're all Democrats together, it's 60-40, right? 60% yeah. Trump, 40 mm-hmm. Democrat. And I would just say that if Trump is not reelected, although, you know, maybe our pollsters mm-hmm. 
here. Don't uh, think think that will happen. Uh, there could be plenty of uncertainty and change that could affect the oil and gas industry in the U.S. So I think many of you have been following the Green New Deal, mm-hmm. and some Democrats have some pretty big changes that they'd like to see to the energy sector. So we'll wait and see if that happens. Well, time is sort of running uh, short. We're having a great discussion here, but I think we should get to some of the audience questions yes. as, as well. So you want to take the first one? Okay. The first question coming from our audience is around Canadian sentiment. What, in your perspective, needs to happen to bring capital flows back into energy and into Canada? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I'll take the first stab at it. I mean, I think that, uh, first of all, there is a big perception gap between what is actually happening here in terms of costs and environmental performance metrics versus what the belief is, not only in the populace, but in the investment community. And also in terms of the ability of the, the companies here to make money. And I think it'll be about a year or so uh, where sort of confidence will start to get rebuilt, to be honest with you. But what has to happen is, um, you know, we do have to get some resolution to these pipeline issues. I think that that still remains to be a big cloud that's hanging over. That's number one. And number two, I think is a better definition of where investment dollars are going to go. Okay, you know, I'll give you money, but where are you going to put it? Are you just merely going to put it back in productive capacity? Are you going to put it in uh, something else that makes me, you know, a better return on my dollar? I I think those are sort of bigger questions because the historical calculus of I'll give you money, you grow your production and sell your company, um, that's an old school calculus at the moment. Yeah, and I also think that companies have to prove at these type of price levels that we're seeing right now, the low gas prices, the $50 to $60 oil price, that companies can give them back money, that they actually do have enough cash flow to sustain their production, but also to provide dividends and buybacks. And so uh, I think it'll take some time to prove that. And by the way, I would add, it it may not just be pipelines that add that certainty around market access. It may also be establishment of crude by rail and seeing investors believing that that can really work and be economic. And you're starting to hear companies talk about moving to bitumen-only crude by rail and things that would be much more economic uh, for a longer-term way of moving crude oil out of Western Canada. Yeah, I'm going to take the next one. Okay, next question, the Permian. Will the Permian roll over? Thoughts on when and the capability? Well, you want me to take a stab at that? Yeah, I mean, well, the, I... Uh, the, the, the crowd here resolutely said the U.S. oil production, which dominantly is coming from the Permian, I think, is, yeah. is going to go up another million barrels a day. So they they're don't think they're not gonna... thinking it's rolling over in 2020. Yeah. We should have asked uh, 2021 yeah. and 2022 so that I'd have more basis for my answer. Um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Permian. We had a podcast on it when I did my trip in March, and I learned a lot. I met a lot of local people. I asked them about all the things that people say in terms of, you know, what will stop the Permian from continuing to grow. And I felt like the people on the ground had really good responses and had thought about ways to midigate the risk, whether it be water, uh, whether it be the uh, parent-child. And the other big change in the Permian that we can't ignore is the sources of capital are changing significantly. Used to be, you know, the pioneer and the endeavor and the small Permian-based producers down there that were were making the growth. Now you've got the big companies in there. You've got ExxonMobil, Chevron, um, well, and these are self-financing companies. Like they don't have to rely on Wall Street for the capital to you know drill the wells and make the production grow. Yeah, and they can bring uh, cash flow from other places in the world in, yeah. and so they can sustain their growth and their capital. Even if prices dip, you're going to continue to see steady growth, mm-hmm. and you're getting you know a much bigger scale of operation in the Permian. So you know the IEA believes that the U.S. production will grow four million barrels a day more 
uh, between now and 2024. And I think that's likely, and I think most of it will come from the Permian. And I think they're just getting going. Uh, there's a lot of resource there. Um, and there's also the potential for a lot of innovation uh, now that you well, have the, the majors in yeah, it. Yeah, the innovation is the big kicker. And I think that the technology, when it comes to things like data science, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, process optimizations, and all those sorts of things, logistics, we're all probably in the second or third inning of this. And we've talked about this on our previous podcast too, that you can expect to see the cost structure go down more. And so that means the ability to bring more out of the ground at progressively lower prices uh, is quite likely. So rollover, which was the question, I mean, I, I think we're still a few years away and rollover is really a function of what the price is going to be. So I, I don't think we can incorporate into our strategies here in Canada that, uh, okay, let's just hope the Permian rolls over and when it does, uh, we'll be okay. Yeah, the price uh, of oil is going to yeah, go up then. Yeah, I think um, our, yeah. our, our task here is to say we've got just as good rocks in many instances, uh, identify them and... Uh, let's compete. And, and that's, you know, I'm happy to say that I think that mentality is starting to really gel in this town, not only whether it's in the oil sands or whether it's in the non-oil sands sector. Yeah. I've got a question here about the Middle East. Um, will a war erupt in the Middle East? Okay, well, that's a loaded question. Uh, thoughts on the geopolitical tensions? Well, I mean, this is, uh, I have no idea, but uh, I, I will tell, I, I'm a person of belief. I mean, I think the tensions are going to continue to ratchet uh, this is a very volatile part of the world. We had a very unique period in history here, but oil history, I would say, between 2000 and circa, I'll say, 2014 to 2018, where the geopolitics were completely calm. Right? It was almost as if in the world of oil, world peace had broken out. And with what we used to call for years the geopolitical premium, which is the price on a barrel of oil to account for the geopolitical risk or for the risk of this exact question, is war going to erupt in the Middle East? Like, what is the option value of that uh, premium? Uh, and, and typically, uh, it's been 5 to $10 a barrel. I think that premium's come back. And, and really, I think the better question is, is that premium going to go away? And I would say, no. I think it's, I think it's here to stay. You know, I would just say that uh, there's this view that there's like ample supply of oil and we can get more oil at any time we want out of the Permian. And so compared to like previous to 2014, when there was that scarcity mindset, we have an abundance mindset. So I believe for us to see oil prices impacted by geopolitics to any extent, there has to be physical outages and outages that look like they're going to be maintained for some time. Uh, so like what happened in Libya back in 2011 when they actually lost capacity, there was damage done to the infrastructure and it was viewed that that supply was offline. If it's just you know geopolitical threats and no real uh, change to the outlook for, for supply, I, I don't think it's going to move the price much. Yeah, yeah, good. So there's a lengthy question for you about the future and you're the futurist, so what do you say? Oh my God. Okay, future variables. Uh, few people would have predicted 10 years ago what today's energy market looks like. If you think about the next decade, what factors do you think might surprise us, which the market would not be thinking about today? Yeah, well, let's just think about 10 years ago, right? At 10 years ago, we were expecting that gas prices were going to go to like 10 or $12 US per MMBTU in North America, because we obviously had to import natural gas. People were building terminals to do that. Uh, you know, we thought oil was 
since such scarce supply that we had to go to the ends of the earth, even as far as the Canadian oil sands, uh, to, yeah. to get those last barrels of oil. They were going to have oh, to be yeah. the expensive barrels of oil. And here we are in this era of abundance where we were in complete scarcity 10 years ago. Yeah. So could we go back to that sense of scarcity 10 years from now? Do no, I don't likely? think so. I, I really don't. I, I think that if we go back 100 years when we went from uh, cable tool drilling, which was basically drilling a well by pounding a spike into the ground, and you know, that had its limitations of several hundred feet to rotary drilling, uh, that was a step change which resulted in an order of magnitude, in other words, 10 times improvement in our ability to bring hydrocarbons out of the ground. Fast forward 100 years, uh, we now have horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing and all sorts of other processes that are combined with digital technologies that have formed another step change. And our ability to bring oil and gas out of the ground has spiked up. I mean, some of the productivity numbers are tenfold. I mean, we used to be satisfied 10 years ago or less if a well produced 50 barrels a day on initial production. Today, we're disappointed if it's 500. I mean, that's that, that's that 10 times difference. And, and so I, I really don't see us going back to a period of scarcity anytime soon. And I think that that notion just means different business strategies. Uh, that the oil and gas industries need to adapt to, and they're adapting to. And I think that gets back to this next question here that uh, is being posed by our audience, and we somewhat covered it a little bit, but it's worth repeating it in this question. Does the message about zero growth, remember the poll said that no zero dollars are going to growth, does that message in polling equate to the market wanting better profitability? In other words, investors wanting better profitability. I mean, absolutely yes. I mean, show me the money. That's the message that is being sent to this industry because historically, the money uh, and returns have been driven by oil price going up. But if you're in a period of abundance, it's now show me the money in a period of abundance. Mm -hmm. And companies are now starting to show that they can do that. And by the way, when you make money, give it back to me. And that's the whole bit about dividends and buybacks. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, this is an adaptation that uh, co the company, which has operated for, I don't know, decades, four or five decades, maybe longer, on this premise that we're in scarcity and we have to, uh, and, and costs are going to go up and therefore prices are going to go up, quickly flipping to a period of abundance and adapting to the new business strategy. I mean, actually, it's quite remarkable. It's only happened in the span of three or four years. And, and I think it's going to, as you look forward to the next three or four years, this is what this industry is going to show. That's what investors want. And I think that's, in that regard, I would agree that today's stock prices are undervalued. Mm -hmm. I think the market is underestimating the ability of the industry to fulfill that profitability desire by the investors. Yeah. You don't yeah. underestimate the ability no. of this industry yeah. to innovate. Look at 2014 yeah. when the prices dropped. It was like, oh my God, we can never develop uh, some of these offshore projects or oil sands for less than $100 a barrel. Uh, and now we're seeing that offshore projects are being developed for $40 a barrel. So, you know, when you're uh, under pressure, you can innovate. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, thank you everyone for joining us on our live podcast today. It was great to have a, a real audience and to get your questions. Hope that you can tune in to our podcast when we post it later in July. And again, thank you to all our listeners for following us. We've uh, been uh, podcasting since September every single week, and we're going to take a summer break. And we will be back in September uh, with new editions well, of the Arc. Forward to that. And in the meantime, thanks again to Scotiabank for allowing us to host this live session, and thanks to our audience. Fantastic. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com. <laughs>